One of the most popular garden vegetables can also seem like the most difficult to grow. So today we have Mallory Kelly, REA in Central Alabama, here to help us take some of the mystery out of growing tomatoes. Today on From the Ground Up. From the Ground Up, a podcast of the Alabama Extension Home Grounds Team, educating you about home landscapes, gardens, and home pests. I'm your host, Brian Brown. Welcome to the podcast, Mallory. Thank you for having me, Brian. What is the deal with tomatoes? Like how, why is it so many people have so much trouble growing tomatoes? Well, I think that's because so many people grow tomatoes. Um, it, it, like you said, it's the most popular plant in the vegetable garden, but it's also the most problematic. So if there's an indicator plant in your garden that something's going on, um, either it's a drift from a herbicide or an insect or disease pressure, that is in the area, your tomato is going to be the first one to, to show you those signs and symptoms and indicate there's an issue going on. What would you say is the, the thing that affects tomatoes the most? Oh, gosh, definitely. Oh, it's hard to narrow it down to just one. I would say it depends on the time of the year, if they're early in the season or are you late summer. Um, but our foliar fungal issues are going to be a huge issue. Pretty much every tomato out there is going to be susceptible to early blight, which is a fungal issue that's existent in our soils everywhere. So we can do some integrated pest management strategies to suppress those fungal issues um, by mulching the soil so that we don't get rainwater splash. Um, also drip irrigation instead of overhead irrigating our crops watering early in the morning instead of late afternoon. There's lots of different things that we can do to help suppress those fungal issues that are there and they're going to be prevalent and a problem. In addition to then spraying a preventative fungicide on those plants. But then as you get further into the summer, you still have those fungal issues, but then you've got insects replicating and the warmer the temperatures are for the longer the period of time, the more generations of Moss you're going to have, which then you have tomato hornworm, fruit worms, those type issues to go out there and combat so that they're not eating your all the foliage or even the fruit off your plants before you are able to collect a harvest. I know there's a lot of, um, when you buy a tomato in the store, you can look on the tag and there's also codes on there. Right. You want there's to explain? a lot of things to think about yeah. before you put that plant in the ground, selecting the right variety. And that is... There's a there's it, it's a tricky tricky web to to sort through. So first of all, what kind of tomato are you wanting to grow? Is it for your salads um, or to put in a pasta salad, or are you wanting to grow those large fruit for a BLT in the middle of July? Are you sold on heirlooms? You like the taste and the flavor of those, or are you more geared towards you're fine with like a hybrid type tomato? So first of all, this, the type of fruit. Are you wanting small cherry size or are you wanting large fruit? So that's the first thing, thing, first thing to consider. When you go to um, then the garden center, you're going to want to determine where you're putting this plant. Is it going to be in a raised bed? Is it going to be in a pot on your back patio? Or are you tilling the ground and you're planting a row of tomatoes? Or are you putting it in your greenhouse? Different situations are going to be better for different types of tomatoes. When we talk about tight, there's determinate and then there's indeterminate tomatoes. So determinate are pretty much all those that we're going to buy in the grocery store. They're growing to a determined height. 
and that's for uh, commercial production in a field type setting. They can go out and harvest most all their fruit in a short window of time and then replant. And they flush those varieties, flush all their fruit in about a three, four week time frame. And you also don't have to stake and trellis them so high up in the sky, you know, tying them to the fence in the backyard or, you know, creating all those structures for that. Now, an indeterminate tomato is going to grow indeterminately. Like it can grow 20 feet long until a frost or a disease or something like that kills it back. It will continue to grow. All tomatoes are vines, but there's two different really types. That indeterminate is going to grow for an extended period of time, but just giving you a few fruits here and there throughout the season where determinate are going to flush all, all of its fruit at once. So a lot of times people will say, all right, well then I guess I want an indeterminate. Well, because they want to continue to have that fruit, but a determinate variety, you're going to get more fruit at one time, but you don't have to deal with all the staking and trellising. And then you can always succession plant or prune off a sucker and plant another fruit crop coming on behind it. So first of all, determinant if you want a determinate or an indeterminate. And then from there, deciding how much insect and disease pressure you've had in your area, um, how much of a problem have you had growing tomatoes in the past, and then you'll want to look for disease resistance. And that is indicated on the tag, like you were referring to when you go to the garden center. So first of all, what type of tomato do you want? Cherry tomato, big, large fruit set. Then do you want determinate or an indeterminate? variety and then disease presence um, is going to determine like if the more letters you get on the tag the more resistance are bred into that hybrid variety so if it says um, v f n t s w v those are all letters that indicate disease resistance that are bred into those hybrids but if you go with an heirloom variety you're not going to have any bread resistance. So your plants are going to be susceptible to all of those issues. So you're really going to have to do a lot of homework before you start planting on tomatoes and planting your garden out, Craig. Ideally to be successful, right? Everybody's growing them and they're the most popular plant in the vegetable garden, but again, the most problematic. So if you do your research ahead of time, you know what you're shopping for to make the best selection for your home garden to be successful, then you're going to be more successful on the back end with um, picking the right type for the environment that you have. And then the, the more disease resistance is definitely going to give you a leg up, especially if you don't like to spray because putting those fungicides out there can help with some of those. But um, again, it's not a guarantee. And then if you don't like to spray, then more resistance is going to give you uh, more protection. Yeah, I think a lot of people have a lot of misconception about spraying fungicides because they get funguses on their tomatoes or their plants and they want to cure it. And fungi really doesn't act like that on a plant. You know, once it has it, it has it. There's nothing that you can do. It's not going to heal itself. It has to put on new leaves to... Um, right, overcompensate yeah, for that foliage. Exactly. Yeah, so a lot exactly. Of, yeah, so yeah, so I get a lot of you know a lot of calls about that, and you know they think that the leaf is going to heal. So I'm like, well, it's really a preventative. So that's really what I try to stress with people is, hey, you have to prevent this. It's not something that you can cure. Exactly, and a lot of times those fungal issues are going to start on the lower leaves again, right at the soil surface, where those fungal spores are splashing up onto the leaves. So limbing up your 
plants so that the foliage is not laying on the surface of the soil or even um, I know when they're really small plants you can't remove all of the foliage obviously but as they grow removing at least the bottom foot of the plant um, so that there's space between the ground and those branches and the water can't splash up as much but then starting that fungicide spray when they're small then when you start seeing fungal spots brown yellow lesions on the fruit on the leaves going in there and picking those leaves off and then of course spraying that fungicide on the green healthy tissue is going to prevent those fungal spores from then um, continuing to travel up the plant. Yeah. And, you know, cleaning up around the tomato at the bottom of if there's any dead leaves or anything like that, making sure those are cleaned up too is is a really important thing because if there's spores on that leaf, it can splash and kind of work its way up as right. it continues to splash up the, up the plant. So, And once a, a plant is done, pull it out. Don't leave plants that are even when you're finished harvesting at the end of the year in their tomato cages, sitting out in the garden to just compost themselves. Go ahead and remove them. I wouldn't even add them to my compost pile. Just get rid of diseased tomato plants for sure. And that way those fungal spores are not overwintering in that plant material. And then they're sitting there primed, ready to go next year. As soon as the temperatures are favorable, we get afternoon rain splashing up on the foliage, then you're going to start seeing those issues. So breaking the cycle by removing the plant material as soon as the plant has finished production is going to be another key to success. So Mallory, there's some organic options that you can use for uh, fungicide, correct? There are some organic options. Um, Copper is oftentimes a product that we'll use in the garden. We use it for fungal issues as well as some bacterial spot or speck on the fruit or the foliage. Um, sulfur as well and then there's some oil type products neem oil out there but be very careful with those in the vegetable garden as we go into the heat of the summer because oftentimes it'll end up burning the foliage and the fruit yeah and you can use oils for other things too like insects correct you can um and even soaps are used for soft-bodied insects it will uh Uh, suffocate the body of the insect. So it depends on what kind of insect it is for sure. So when you say soaps, you're not meaning liquid dish detergent soap, correct? Right. Most of the time not. Um, I mean, some some gardeners will use those, but a lot of times they have lotions and aloes and things like that mixed in there as well. So I would recommend that you go and buy an insecticidal soap that's actually labeled. Um, We want to make sure we follow the label with any of these products that we apply. Make sure that the insect you're trying to control is listed and that you're also following the directions on temperature and timing, how many days you need to wait before you can apply it again. And even the post-harvest interval date should be listed on there as well. So it may tell you um, one post-harvest interval or 7 or 10, 14, 21. Just depends on the active ingredient in the product. And that means you have to wait 7, 10 even 21 days from the time that you applied it until you can harvest the fruit and actually consume it. Another insecticide that we didn't mention just a second ago that is organic, and I recommend it in all vegetable gardens, whether you're growing tomatoes or lettuce, broccoli, cabbage, collards, anything like that is Bacillus thuringiensis, often sold as the trade name Dipel, but it's a bacteria that's a 
a gut poison to tiny worm larvae. Really, it only works against them when the larvae are really small and when you don't really see them or the damage that they're producing. But you can keep it out there regularly. Oftentimes, it's bought in the garden centers as a dust and you apply it to the foliage. It has a zero post-harvest interval date. So again, it's a bacteria that's a gut poison to worms. But for humans, it doesn't affect our gut. So, um, of course, you would still wash the fruit before you consume it. But it's a really good control for just worms. And it's going to be specific so you're not killing ladybugs and honeybees or anything else of that nature. You're only controlling worms in the garden. So how does the rain affect those? Yeah, if it rains, you pretty much need to go back out and reapply. That's almost with any of our insecticides or our fungicides that we apply. You want to try to do it when you've got a, a at least a few days span in the weather when it's not going to rain for it to be most effective. So one of the most common questions I get about tomatoes is blossom in rot because a lot of people have this problem. And right. a lot of people think it's a, a disease, you know, they're like, what's wrong with it? It's, but it's really not a disease. You know, I think it's considered a disease in, you know, in professionally and whatnot, right. but it's actually a physiological disorder. That's right. Um, with blossom and rot, a lot of it can be prevented with a soil test. So we recommend at least every three years, go out there, collect soil, get a soil test, send it off to the lab, $10 now at Auburn University, and they can give you recommendations, mostly for your pH range and make sure you have enough calcium in the soil. But most times with blossom and rot, most times it is not so much that calcium is not available in the soil, but it's the environment in which the plant is living. A lot of times there is calcium there, but our soils will go from saturated with a lot of rainfall or a lot of water from you out there in the afternoon with a water hose. And then we don't water again or you go on vacation for the next week or two and the soils get bone dry. So we're going from really saturated to really dry conditions back and forth. And that oftentimes is what causes it. The calcium is there. It's just not available for the plant to take it up. If you can moderate your moisture level in the soil, then you're going to most times eliminate the blossom and rot issue. And that can be done with, of course, drip irrigation, putting that water directly to the soil. But I tell gardeners, the number one thing you can do to be successful in a vegetable garden is to mulch. Putting that thick layer of mulch around your plants, and that's never done in a vegetable garden. I don't know if it's because the size of a garden, if it's in ground, oftentimes that seems overwhelming or no one ever sees a garden like that mulch, so then they don't mulch their raised bed vegetable garden, but mulching your garden is going to be key. Either, you know, raking up leaves in the fall and piling them up to then later use them as a mulch is also a free source if you don't have pine straw nearby that you can rake. But that's going to keep the soil a constant temperature and keep the sun from hitting it directly and drying it out. And that will oftentimes eliminate the blossom and rot issue. Yeah. And so one of the things about blossom and rot, and I'm going to get real technical on, on everybody here, calcium is uptaken with water to the plant. The calcium ion actually binds cell walls together. And so when that calcium is not in that plant, the cell walls kind of break apart. And so that's what you're seeing because that's the most active growing part of the tomato is on the on that distal end of it. So on the end of that tomato or the bottom of the tomato, 
that's where you're going to get that rot or what looks like rot. So it's really just that tomato end collapsing because its cell walls aren't bound together. Sorry for the uh, technical explanation, but that's how it works. That's awesome. That's right. And it's not just tomatoes. You'll see it in um, your squash and zucchini sometimes as well and watermelons. A lot of our melons are also susceptible to it. So what kind of other problems do you see uh, with tomatoes? The uh, presence of southern blight is also something that you should be on the lookout for. With that one, we can easily identify it because of seeing the actual spores and the mycelium of the fungal issue right at the base of the plant where it enters the ground. Um, So that would be something to keep an eye on. Uh, Bacterial wilt is more common, I would say, in my area. It's a bacteria that's in the soil and it clogs the vascular system. So you go out and water because the plants look wilted and then you go back out and they don't look any different. They, they're they healthy and happy and green. They just look like they haven't had water in, a, in three or four weeks. Even with your continued watering, they don't perk up. And that's where that fungal, uh, that bacterial issue has clogged up so that the plant can't take up water. With that one, you need to be very careful um, removing the plant and all the soil around the roots. Being careful not to take your shovel and dig here or move soil here or there, you're really going to want to pick up and move to a different area to garden. Um, so that that's a hard one when you get it in, in the soil. And nematodes are another thing to, to be on the lookout for with tomatoes. Um, if your plants are just stunted and aren't producing as well they sh- as they should at the end of the year or, you know, once once they're they're done with most of their production, make sure you inspect your plants and uh, look on the root system for little knobs and nodules. And that would indicate that there are nematodes in the soil. And oftentimes that causes a suppression of growth and production. Also, your tomato spotted wilt virus. Again, that's one that we do have some bread resistance to. If on the tag, you'll see TSWV. That is a virus that's transmitted by a tiny little insect you can see with the naked eye but you wouldn't see it unless you're out scouting or or looking for it directly but um, it's a virus that's transmitted and really hard to control especially because insecticides and things you put out there the insects already transmitting it the virus before it ingests enough of a product to kill it and then it's infected your plants more of an issue um, commercially because of our, um, our industry dependence on tomatoes in a, in a field type situation. But homeowners absolutely can get it. If you have a plant that's distorted in growth, um, bronzing of the foliage and yellowing, uh, stunted, that would, and then concentric rings on the fruit is an indication that you have tomato spotted wilt virus. So what about fertilizing? What, what is the best fertilized to use on a tomato? When it comes to fertility, soil testing, obviously you want to make sure that your pH is in that mid-range, um, 6 to 6.5. want to make sure that um, you've got enough nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium out there. But remember, tomatoes are vines. So if you over-fertilize them, you may not get a lot of fruit production. You'll get a lot of vine growth. So if your plants are really lush and green, and happy, but you're not getting any fruit set, it's probably because you've over-fertilized it. 
and it's sending more into vegetative growth and not into fruit. So a lot of times I tell people, you may need to stress that plant out a little bit. And uh, especially nutrient wise. And um, when a plant's in stress, it'll oftentimes cause it to, to flower and produce fruit as it wants to naturally perpetuate itself with offspring. So just make sure you don't over-fertilize, especially with a nitrogen fertilizer. And then the phosphorus is that middle number in a fertilizer bag um, or product. And that can build up in the soil over time and cause some issues in the plant. And you can see some results of sometimes if you've got like purple colored foliage or yellowing of the foliage, that would be an indication of some either lack of or toxicity of too much of a nutrient Um, so of course, soil testing is going to be your best bet and then following those recommendations. So another problem I get caused about a lot is, especially in the late summer, people having their tomatoes drop flowers. What causes that? Tomatoes dropping their flowers is really due to heat in the summer. We, you know, naturally would not find a tomato growing in Alabama. It's in a mountainous range in South America is where they're native to, So they really don't like our hot, humid summers. Of course, we've hybridized them to find varieties that do better for the situation where we live. But if you do have an issue with them aborting flowers, make sure that, you know, if you have the ability, you could put a shade cloth over them. Or if they're in a pot or container, you could move it to an area that gets a little bit of afternoon shade if, if necessary. Also just ride, ride the, the wave because and keep putting out that fungicide to keep the plant foliage happy. And then knowing that, you know, cooler temperatures will eventually come. If, if we're in August, hang on, you maybe can keep it alive until we get a, some, um, some cooler days towards the fall months. There are also heat tolerant varieties that are now due to hybridization. Um, we'll do better in our area. And most of the time, those have some type of solar indicator in their name, so solar flare or heat, and so sun master, things like that, that you can use as an indicator that that plant is more tolerant to really hot summer days. Certain varieties that are going to mature a lot faster than others, some will produce in 50 to 60 days. I'm like early girl, for instance, early indicated in her name, she'll produce in about 50 to 55 days, where... Uh, those late varieties like Ace is one. Um, most of our heirlooms, um, Brandywines and uh, Cherokee Purple, those are going to be uh, long, 100 days before you're you're going to be seeing fruit on that. So, you again, with an heirloom, you've got a plant that's not bred for any resistance that you've got to keep alive so much longer before it's even going to start producing a fruit for you. Not to say don't grow an heirloom, but mix in some hybrid varieties in with your heirlooms. So you're not putting all of your bank account in on a certain variety that's um, that may end up dying on you before you end up coming into harvest season. So speaking of harvest, I remember my mom and my grandma, they would pick tomatoes green and then put them on the windowsill and then they would turn red. So what's the difference in picking them green, letting them turn red versus letting them ripen on the vine? Right. So an advantage to that as a homeowner is that tomatoes will continue to ripen. Not all fruits will do that um, on their own. Some you have to wait until they're completely ripened before you harvest them. But with tomatoes, 
a lot of times that will help you avoid some of the critter problems um, with birds coming and pecking at the fruit, squirrels coming and stealing your harvest, and then also worms. Um, maybe you won't have to spray as long to keep the worms from getting in there and destroying the fruit on the plant. So, you know, bringing them inside, there's there's really no problem with that. Some people do say it affects the taste. Um, the longer it stays on the vine, of course, it is getting nutrients and water from the, the root system of that plant. But what what really happens on the windowsill is the sugars continue to accumulate in that in that fruit as it also ripens up and it becomes softer and more more tasty i guess you would say of course i like a fried green tomato as well but um for a, a blt you definitely want a real ripe juicy tomato Mallory, thanks for joining us today. I hope everyone has learned a little bit about growing tomatoes and hopefully you'll be successful this summer when growing them. That's right. Thank you for having me and just implementing a few of these tips along the way, whether it's fungicides or putting in mulch or scouting for insects, things like that along the way will definitely help increase your success. And I hope everyone has a great summer and um, enjoys those tomatoes. If you have any questions, feel free to contact your local extension agent. And until then, we'll see you next time. From the Ground Up is a production of the Alabama Cooperative Extension System. 